Hey everyone, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. In this show, we explore the universe's great unknown, the human brain. In my reflections and interviews with guests, we'll go to the forefront of psychiatry, neuroscience, nutrition, and medicine to see how we can enhance our mental health, sharpen our cognition, and reach better performance. This is Brain Health, and I'm Dr. Nissen. Let's dive right in. Today, we're going to be learning all about how our diets interact with our brains to form our, our mental illnesses and our neurologic illnesses, uh, be it things like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, or be it a mental illness like depression. Um, there are so many ways that what we eat interacts with, uh, with our brain. And so today, I'm so happy to be here with Dr. Nick Norwitz. Um, Dr. Nick, could you uh, tell everyone a bit about yourself, about your background? Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Nick, um, for having me. This is going to be really fun. I just finished my PhD over at Oxford in um, metabolism and neurodegenerative diseases, and I'm entering at Harvard as a medical student. So I'm a pre-MD doctor. I'm not an MD doctor like you, um, although I've been researching this space about the interaction between our diets and our metabolic health, and I can define that in a minute. But um, you know, the neurological diseases that we see be those, um, you know, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's or different manifestations, mental illnesses. They're all different manifestations of what I would call metabolic disease. Um, and so the thesis is that you can address metabolic diseases of all sorts, including the neurological ones and the mental illnesses by addressing the roots of metabolic disease. And I think one of those huge roots is nutrition, what we put into our bodies. So um, that's what I think we're going to be talking about today, and it's one of my favorite topics. So uh, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that that is really an interest of mine, and I think something would be great to jump into, is a discussion about Alzheimer's. Um, uh, so you know, for people out there, and, and I think even myself, growing up, you know, you you see Alzheimer's maybe in in loved ones who are aging, and it seems like just one of these just really sad. Um, unpreventable sort of, uh, uh, you know, just really degenerating uh, diseases that bring someone to an end of their life that really feels so undignified, you know, and, um, and so for me, it seemed like it's sort of inevitable that, you know, if somebody has some sort of genetic risk, once they get old enough, it just happens. But uh, as I've been, you know, reading more and more about it, and, and um, as, as I'm sure, you know, you'll talk about in, in some of the research that you've been doing, and what you've been reading, I mean, it really is just another part of metabolic disease, you know, and, and metabolic disease, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, or metabolic syndrome, you know, is referring to uh, these very common diseases that, that we see uh, in the hospital all the time, people with, uh, with uh, like blood cholesterol derangements and hypertension or high blood pressure and diabetes being a really important component of that. So uh, would you mind, you know, talking a little bit about Alzheimer's and how it relates to, to metabolic syndrome? Yeah, for sure. So just to quickly define what metabolic syndrome is and metabolic health and metabolic medicine, all these things, I, just as a grounding, and then, and then I'll get into your question. So there is a condition called metabolic syndrome, and there, th that basically suggests that your body isn't good at using energy, partitioning it in different ways. It manifests in things like insulin resistance, inflammation, 
The markers for that are having um, high triglycerides, high basically fat in the blood, um, which more comes from sugar than actual fat, then low HDL cholesterol. LDL isn't actually a component of uh, metabolic syndrome, then having high blood pressure, um, high waist circumference, and um, what did I, what am I missing? High blood pressure, oh, and then high insulin levels or um, high glucose levels. So there are five possible markers. And if you have three of those, you have metabolic syndrome. About a third of Americans have full-blown metabolic syndrome, but about 90%, about 88% actually, have a marker of metabolic syndrome, which means your metabolic health isn't very good. So you have a degree of insulin resistance and you are at greater risk, things like Alzheimer's disease. Let's, let's just say that there, there are a core set of pathologies that contribute to metabolic disease, like inflammation, oxidative stress, um, and insulin resistance. And these are all you know, critical to Alzheimer's disease. If you can have, say, a brain without inflammation, you're not going to get Alzheimer's disease. You're going to prevent it. But actually, to make that point, I want to talk about just some of the population literature to show that you can prevent Alzheimer's disease. So for example, if you look at um, populations in Nigeria and in, in Western Africa, if you look at people with a high prevalence of this gene ApoE4. So ApoE4 is the main genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. But 40 to 65% of cases of Alzheimer's, they have this ApoE4 gene and it increases risk for having Alzheimer's disease by three to 12 fold. It's a massive risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. But if you look at these Nigerians who are living a very like healthy, holistic lifestyle, if they have this risk factor gene, they have no increase in Alzheimer's rates as compared to other people, which is consistent with the notion that, you know, we have genes, they, they load the gun, but it's really environment that pulls the trigger. So it's lifestyle and environment that matter. Now, one could argue that there are other factors interacting in the genes of these Nigerians to kind of mitigate the effect. But then if you do, you know, population comparisons between Africans who live in Africa and Nigeria versus say, um, they did one in Indianapolis in the United States, they have a similar genetic background, but those who live in the United States have twice an increase, two-fold increased uh, rates of Alzheimer's disease um, prevalence. Suggesting again that, you know, the lifestyle is a huge factor. And it's not just in the Nigerians or other populations. So if you look at Southern Italians, look at Southern Italians at genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease. Southern Italians living in the United States and Southern Italians living in Southern Italy, living a traditional like Mediterranean um, lifestyle. So not just diet, but whole lifestyle. What they found was those in the United States um, were much more likely to die. Uh, we're very unlikely to get to like, live to extreme old ages. So in the top 1% of longevity, which is above 95 for men and 99 for women. Um, I think the odds ratio is 0.29. But if you look at the Southern Italians in Italy, there was no difference. They were just as likely to live to be basically close to 100 as everybody else in the population, despite their high risk for Alzheimer's disease. And this is directly relevant to Alzheimer's because once you get diagnosed with Alzheimer's, the median lifespan is about six years. So, you know, if we just look at the epidemiology uh, and the population studies, what that starts to tell us is lifestyle, or it's consistent with the idea that lifestyle is really important in determining Alzheimer's risk. And I think that is pretty much accepted now that 95% 
percent of cases with Alzheimer's disease have a huge environmental component. There are five percent of cases that you know there are actually causative genes of APP, PSM1, and PSM2, which can actually cause Alzheimer's disease, and there's not much you can do about it. Kind of like Huntington's, that sucks. But by far, in most cases of Alzheimer's disease, environment plays a huge role. Um, and then you get into the pathologies that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. And we can talk about each of these and some of the new literature that comes out, which I think is interesting and how we might be able to mitigate it, reverse it, um, prevent it really. But um, you know, these things like inflammation, insulin resistance, they're ubiquitous in the Alzheimer's brain. Um, Alzheimer's so, disease, go ahead, sorry. Well, so, so just to sort of um, you know, summarize that a little bit. So for in Alzheimer's disease, you know, it's pretty well known that there's these that, that there are these ApoE4 alleles or ApoE3 alleles that that people have, and that you know some percentage of the population uh, has these ApoE4 alleles that are that put you at higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, and you can have one, or you can have two of these alleles. I think like two percent of the population has two of these ApoE4 alleles. And it's you you have two copies of ApoE4. I happen to. Yeah, wow. not, not many people my age know that, but I actually happen to know I have two copies. Yeah, I, I had suspected because of my family history of, of dementias that I might be a carrier or something, but uh, I, I, I don't have uh, any ApoE4 alleles. But nevertheless, when I was suspecting it, that was one of the things that sort of put me down this rabbit hole of looking into genetic wow. risk for no, developing it's, Alzheimer's. It's fascinating. I, sorry, I was going on a little diatribe. I think an analogy to use. Mm-hmm. You know, for whether or not you have ApoE3 or ApoE4, and with Alzheimer's disease, um, just in general, is the idea of like a rock on a hill. The way we're addressing Alzheimer's disease now is like if you have a boulder or a rock rolling down a hill, what we're trying to do is stop it from rolling. We're trying to get behind it. We put like a lasso around it. We're trying to like pull it back. And that's a failed attempt. Maybe we can come up with an intervention to slow the disease a little bit and even lifestyle. I think lifestyle can slow disease progression, but you know, Alzheimer's is a disease that starts at least 20 to 30 years, if not mm-hmm. more, before you develop symptoms. So if you start an intervention once you have symptoms, it really is too late. You know, there are trials showing that say ketogenic diets can improve Alzheimer's disease symptoms. In fact, just a couple of months ago, Phillips et al. had a, a trial showing that this is in New Zealand, a uh, ketogenic diet was pretty, it was meaningfully effective, significantly effective over an isocaloric low fat diet and improving quality of life and activities of daily living. And there was a trend towards cognition as well, key point one, two. But um, I think once the disease, the boulders rolling down the hill, there's not much you can do. So what we need to do is focus on not pushing right. boulder down the hill. Like, right. you know, and so, so what are those factors that are the pushers? We can talk about those. But you know, what I would say is that if you have ApoE3, the top of your hill is, is more like table-like, more plateau. If you imagine, you know, that plateau, it could bulge just further away from the edge. And so you have more wiggle room. Mm-hmm. If you have ApoE4, you have very little wiggle room. So there's no reason you have to get Alzheimer's disease, but you don't have the flexibility to be a little bit metabolically unhealthy, like things like sleep and exercise and a poor diet. If you have ApoE3, you might be able to get away with those things and never get Alzheimer's disease. If you have ApoE4, there's actually a pretty slim chance, especially if you have two copies. If you have two copies, you don't have any wiggle room. You don't have to get Alzheimer's disease, but you, you actually then need to pay attention to all these lifestyle factors. 
Um, and so, you know, we, we can go into depth if you want about like what some of those things um, are. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you, you've talked a little bit about some of the lifestyle factors and, and perhaps about diet and, and some of the ways that that contributes. Um, so, yeah, if you if you could talk a little bit in particular about the role that insulin plays, because um, that's one way that that our brains are affected in Alzheimer's. Yeah, so so um, insulin, you, people think of it peripherally as like the fat storage hormone. It's basically a growing hormone including, you know, it goes up when you're becoming obese or actually causes you to become obese. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has a lot of really important functions throughout the body, including in the brain. So insulin can get into the brain. There's also some data suggesting the brain can make it. What we do know is that insulin is in the brain and there are receptors all over the brain for insulin that control things like your appetite, but also just have neurons grow. So the ends of neurons where they connect to each other and send messages or they release neurotransmitters, are really enriched in um, insulin receptors. And what happens in in Alzheimer's disease is you get an insulin resistant brain. And so lifestyle contributes to this. Having like lots of sugar in your diet, you know, not exercising will will contribute to insulin resistance in Alzheimer's disease. So that's observed. If you have Alzheimer's disease, you basically have insulin resistance in the brain. And there are a lot of things that insulin resistance can do. I'll name a few. One is that insulin resistance goes hand in hand with high insulin levels, because when you, your body's resistant to insulin, your, your body tries to make more to compensate. That's called hyperinsulinemia or high insulin. And the enzyme that breaks down the amyloid, amyloid plaques, you've probably heard of that associated with Alzheimer's disease, the insulin degrading enzyme actually degrades amyloid. So when you have insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, you're competing with an enzyme. So you can't break down amyloid. That's one thing it does. Another thing it does is if you have insulin resistance, you can't turn off this protein called GSK3 beta, glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta. Um, now this enzyme goes by another name as well, called tau kinase 1. It's a lot of jargon, but um, there are two main pathologies associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, if you look in the brain, there are amyloid plaques and there are neurofibrillary tau tangles. And this enzyme, tau kinase 1 or GSK3 beta, two different names for it, 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 as its name suggests, tau kinase 1, it actually is the thing that hyperphosphorylates tau, causing the neurofibrillary tangles. It can be the bridge between amyloid and tau. And it helps process amyloid precursor into the, um, the neurotoxic amyloid oligomers. So insulin resistance, by removing the break on this enzyme, tau kinase 1, GSK3 beta, it can increase the production of neurotoxic amyloid and neurotoxic tau, the two pathologies associated with Alzheimer's disease. Mm. So these are, these are the two um, yeah. you know, proteins that we see accumulating in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. So they, they accumulate more in, in the setting of insulin resistance. Yeah. So, so insulin resistance can directly contribute to their uh, development. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I can, I can link a paper that's quite technical on the multi-loop model about how these things interact, but that's pretty well um, established. And also, again, insulin, it helps glucose get taken up into cells, helps cells grow, it helps neurons grow. So if you're insulin resistant, your neurons can't make connections as well. You can't learn as well. You can't release neurotransmitters as well. And you, your, your neurons get starved of energy. So your brain, you know, it consumes about a quarter of your energy 
And if you can't keep your brain energy supply going well, then your neurons start to go into you know, an energetic crisis and they start to die. Um, Just why you see atrophy or like shrinking of the brain in people that have Alzheimer's disease. So um, there's that. And then if you even look at the genetic factors, there was an interesting paper um, in 2017 that showed that you know, the, ge the genetic risk factor that we were talking about, that ApoE4, it actually promotes insulin resistance in the brain by trapping insulin receptors in cells in this compartment called the endosome. Mm. Um, so it can exacerbate that problem. But you know, in this particular study, it was exacerbated by an obesogenic diet. So this is a mouse study. And what they found was when they gave mice you know, a, a poor diet, it compounded on the you know, risk of this ApoE4, causing a lot more insulin resistance and cognitive deficits. But we definitely know that you know, insulin resistance in the brain is not only associated with Alzheimer's disease, but there are multiple mechanisms by which insulin resistance, which you can control through diet, and we can talk about how, um, you know, causes a cascade of events in Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, listeners are probably familiar with, with insulin resistance in the setting of diabetes. And so diabetes is sort of the prototypical uh, sort of illness of, of, ins of insulin resistance, but in reality, it's really kind of the extreme end of it in that uh, yeah. there's, there's a lot of people out there who have some degree of insulin resistance, um, even though they don't have a diagnosis of diabetes. And so even if you don't have diabetes, uh, you could have some degree of insulin um, resistance contributing to your possible Alzheimer's yeah. risk as well. For so for sure. So, um, you know, it, I, I guess I can't share a screen right now, but I think the most important graph, I remember this graph by Ben Bickman, it's extremely simple, but I'll describe it. Plus people are probably going to be listening in anyway. It shows a, a time course of glucose and insulin um, and, and over the course of years. So let's first talk about um, the glucose curve. What you'll see is for, for decades, the glucose will be very, very low. And then at one point, it'll just spike. And, that, and that's when you get diabetes. Your HbA1c goes up, and that's when we diagnose with diabetes. Oh, your HbA1c is above 6.5%, therefore you have diabetes. But what's happening to insulin over those years as glucose is stable before it spikes? What happens is that insulin is actually rising decades before glucose. I think one study said like median of 23 years. You have you know, a rise in insulin and a rise in insulin. The reason this is happening is because your body cells, like you say your body's fat cells, um, if you're eating a poor diet, they get full and they get full in different people to a different extent. So you can be skinny, you can look skinny and you should start developing insulin resistance. And we can talk about individual variability later, but um, you can't really know without getting metabolic testing, but your insulin levels are rising because your body is becoming resistant to the signal of insulin. So in order to get the effects, insulin levels have to go up. This causes a lot of down negative side effects like weight gain. As your insulin goes up, you know, you're gonna be gaining more weight. But in any case, your insulin is going up, but your glucose is stable. So you can be going to the doctor, getting a fasting glucose and HbA1c, totally normal, and be developing insulin resistance over time. But then what eventually happens is the pancreas, which is what produces insulin for most of the body, it starts to get tired. It actually can't keep up with the demand of increasing insulin resistance. So you'll become more insulin resistant, you'll secrete more insulin, then you'll become more insulin resistant, secrete more insulin, these things feed back, and eventually your pancreas can't keep up. And so the, and your insulin levels just drop, they plummet because 
your pancreas starts to fatigue and pancreatic cells start to die. And then, because now you're insulin resistant and you have now this plummeting level of insulin, your glucose goes through the roof and then you have diabetes. So a lot of people are in this window of time pre-diabetes where they do have insulin resistance. They may even never develop diabetes and still have insulin resistance. So about 88% of people have some degree of insulin resistance in the United States. And I'm pulling that number from a study that showed that 88% of people, and this was as of 2016, so it's probably worse now, have at least one marker of metabolic syndrome. And if you have metabolic syndrome, you have insulin resistance. So about 88% of people would, I say, be on the spectrum for insulin resistance. And you know, this insulin resistance is at the core of not just diabetes, not just Alzheimer's disease, but most metabolic diseases that you can think of. So just as a case in point, a uh, study just came out a couple months ago, January 20th, uh, 2021, in the journal JAMA Cardiology, about what, what is the strong, strongest risk factors for heart disease. So we think about heart disease and we think, oh, maybe like LDL cholesterol, like that's a strong risk factor for heart disease. Turns out it's actually not. And there's a lot of nuance there. But let's just compare um, LDL cholesterol as a risk factor for heart disease as compared to insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, even without diabetes, is four times as strong a risk factor. There's a lot more nuance there because if you're insulin sensitive and your LDL is high, you probably aren't at increased risk. But even so, like if you just look at the whole population, insulin resistance is four times stronger a risk factor than um, having elevated LDL. And having diabetes is an eightfold increased risk over having high LDL. If you're looking at those things in isolation, this was the women's heart study. It was a study of almost 30,000 women, 28,024 women, I think, um, who were followed for a median time frame of 21.4 years. So big study. And what they found was that the strongest risk factors for diabetes were clinically, sorry, for, for heart disease were clinically diabetes and uh, metabolically speaking, lipoprotein insulin resistance, measure of insulin resistance. Just going to say like, be it cardiovascular disease, be it Alzheimer's disease, insulin resistance is again, one of these core pathologies that talk about insulin resistance inflammation that is at the root of metabolic diseases. And Alzheimer's is just one manifestation of it. And if you look at all the major killers, like Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, they're all metabolic diseases that all come to this same core of something like insulin resistance that is, again, pushing rock down the hill, very preventable and reversible um, with, with proper nutrition. So. Well, so I, I think that we've been hinting at it for a while. So so what would be you know the, uh, the, the right approach to... Um to correcting insulin resistance, both for protection of the brain and Alzheimer's or, you know, preventing any, any other sort of metabolic diseases? Yeah. It, it depends on your starting point. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the relevant place to start will be with the 88%. So we talked about, you know, 88% of people are metabolically unhealthy. Only 12% are really metabolically healthy. So let's start with the 88% just that's because that's a majority. This, the literature shows that the most effective way to improve insulin sensitivity and reverse metabolic syndrome is by reducing carbohydrate intake. It's called therapeutic carbohydrate reduction. There are different degrees of therapeutic carbohydrate reduction, the most extreme of which is say like a ketogenic diet, where calories from carbs constitute less than 5% of total calories or usually less than 25 grams of carbs. And then you enter a state of ketosis 
which is a proxy for being in fat burning mode. And we can talk about more about that specific lifestyle, but mostly it's just reducing the carbohydrates so you can reduce your insulin. And this improves metabolic syndrome and improves insulin uh, resistance. And even independent of weight loss, people like to say, oh, it's the weight loss, but it's not. And studies show that. So just as an example, um, Parker High did a study a couple of years ago. And the way this study was done is they took people with metabolic syndrome and they put them on three separate diets. So everybody did this, all three diets and all the diets had the same amount of protein and the same amount of calories. They were calorie controlled and they went on a low carbohydrate diet with more calories from fat and a high carbohydrate diet that was a low fat diet. So a low carb, high fat diet and a high carb, low fat diet. And then one that was in between. Um, and, and to be clear, all these diets were generated to be healthy. Like the, the low fat diet that was higher in carbs got your like five fruits and vegetables a day, like whole grains. It was on the surface. It looked like a healthy diet. Um, what did they see in this trial? Well, in the four weeks, the participants were on each arm of the trial. If you looked at the, um, low fat diet, only one person of the 16 reversed metabolic syndrome in that time. If you looked at the low carb diet that was higher in fat, nine out of 16 reversed metabolic syndrome at that time. So much higher efficacy, again, independent of weight loss. And if you let people lose weight or the trial was longer than four weeks, I'm sure there would have been a stronger effect. Because again, remember, one of the symptoms of metabolic syndrome is say an increased, increased weight circumference. So one of the things you're doing is you're, you're making it difficult for the waist circumference to go down if you're overfeeding people or, or making sure they maintain their weight, which they were doing. I think the average caloric intake was 2,950 calories. So they're making sure these people maintain their weight. Um, and, 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 and if you look at those kind of studies, I just want to point out that you know things are never as they appear. People like to say you are what you eat. I like to say, when was biology ever so simple? So as a case in point, you know, the high fat group, they were eating more fat because they were eating fewer carbs. So they need more calories from fat to balance it out. Um, and so you would think maybe, oh, the fat in their blood is higher. That would be logical, right? Eat more fat, you have more fat in your blood. Those are known as triglycerides. Turns out that that was not the case at all. So let's just take saturated fat as, a, as an example because it's the most vilified form. The low carb group was eating 100 grams of saturated fat per day versus the lower fat group, um, which is about 40 grams of saturated fat. So 2.5 times as much saturated fat in the high fat, low carb group, they still had less saturated fat and less total fat in their blood. Reason for that is it's actually carbs that get turned into fat through a process called de novo lipogenesis or new fat. And that you know when you reduce the carbs, you actually improve metabolic health so that you can keep the fat in the blood lower. Again, this is just a proxy. We talked about metabolic syndrome. There's different proxies. Fat in the blood is one proxy, but it's not coming from dietary fat. It's coming from an unhealthy metabolism. So this so is a super important point that I think so many people, you know, out there who aren't in this circle, you know, don't hear about. They they hear about from their doctor about their cholesterol levels, and they hear about eating a low fat diet. And so it is turning it on its head when when we say to people that that really, you know, these elevated triglycerides in your, in your blood, um, have more to do with the carbohydrates that you're eating rather than the fat that you're eating. Yeah, it's, it's, and it relates to Alzheimer's disease too. 
I was reading a paper recently that was vilifying saturated fats for Alzheimer's disease because then they go into the mechanisms and they look in the brain. Saturated fats, they build, they activate these immune receptors, TLR4, they contribute to ceramide production, and that's bad for the brain. And I completely agree with that, but there's the missing nuances. Where is that saturated fat coming from? Because it's not the butter, it's not the cheese, you know, it's not the red meat. It's actually the you know, know, liver, the zero fat like Twizzlers or mm-hmm. even even things like bananas, to be quite honest, if you're metabolically unhealthy, you can't handle that food very well. Um, right. It's just sugar that then your liver turns into fat sugar, through your, your liver lipogenesis. turns into fat, um, especially the fructose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm not anti fruit, for example, but if you're metabolically unhealthy, you're not going to handle things like pineapple and banana very well and all these things have nuance i mean another thing i want to point out just about fruits is like people think oh it's a healthy fruit it's natural it's coming from the earth but if you look at what a banana is like now and how it's changed with artificial selection same with a watermelon or a carrot or anything or a lot of things at least you know a, a banana used to be like the size of an apricot with huge seeds and very little sugar you know, a watermelon used to be like the size of my fist. Mm-hmm. The fruits we have today in the supermarket are not fruits we evolved eating. And when we were eating fruits during evolution, we were in that 12%. So we're just talking about the 88% right now. I don't want to vilify carbohydrates mm-hmm. because I'm not saying, say, eat carbohydrates or even sugar, natural sugars per se, cause metabolic disease. Mm-hmm. I'm saying reversing, the, removing them can reverse metabolic disease, metabolic syndrome. Those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. But going back to our ancestors, though, they were, you know, eating fruits at the end of the summer and to put on fat to prepare for the winter, you know, and that's the natural mechanism of, of the fructose. So it was, it was a balance. I think we, we need to, you know, consider, consider that balance in nature. You have periods of anabolism or building up and you have periods of catabolism and breaking down. It just so happens now where most of us are way too in the anabolic state where we're just building up, building up, building up. And you can see that as obesity. So if you're metabolically healthy, if you're in that 12%, if you can get there, then going from periods of having more carbohydrates, even having more fruit, and then going to a lower carbohydrate lifestyle and cycling through that might be the optimal mechanism. Um, But first you have to get into that 12% if you're not already there. And I think, you know, that's the low hanging fruit, uh, pun intended, is to address that 88%. Because, you know, we're speaking about the Apple we fours and stuff. It's like, if you're Apple we three and you're at high risk for Alzheimer's disease, you can maybe get away with being in the 88%. If you're at high risk, like maybe you and definitely me, I have no wiggle room. I can't afford to be in the 88%. Then I'll get Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. I need to be in the 12%. So, you know, we're talking mostly about nutrition, but other things play into that too, like exercise and sleeping well, mm-hmm. um, you know, reducing your stress levels. But I think, you know, the number one thing for people to do if they want to improve their metabolic health and they think they are to some degree insulin resistant and you can get this checked. I mean, the easiest way to do it is get a fasting insulin, um, which you would get with like your, your fasting with panel and below six micro units per liter is good. Um, which is astonishing. When you look at the reference ranges, they say normal is up to 25 to 30. I've talked to a lot of physicians in the metabolic health space. I've never heard somebody say a number above eight, mostly below three. I'm being lenient in saying six, but if you get a fasting insulin level and it's 10, 15, you're to some degree insulin resistant. Your body's putting out more insulin because, you know, 
it's the insulin signal isn't being heard as well by a lot of your body, including your brain. So if you're looking to protect your brain against Alzheimer's disease, then one of the main targets to go after is correcting, you know, insulin resistance. And by doing that through a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet. And I think that we spoke about the insulin component um, in the development of, of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but perhaps could we talk a little bit also about what a ketogenic diet does to protect against Alzheimer's disease, be it the role of beta hydroxybutyrate in, uh, you know, in uh, the reactive oxygen species um, production or in um, the, the increase in NADPH um, or LR. All of those things we could, we could delve into. Um, yeah. One thing it does um, is it can, I'm, I'm just gonna list some things and then you can delve into the mechanisms as, 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 you, as you wanna ask me, but it can protect the blood brain barrier. So new research is coming out showing that especially in APOE4s, the, the thing that separates your brain from your rest of your body, the blood brain barrier is, is impaired. And this predicts cognitive decline, even independent of amyloid and tau. So we talk about amyloid and tau as the things that are elevated in Alzheimer's disease, but even independent of those, there's, um, if you have an increased breakdown of blood brain barrier, uh, increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, especially for APOE4. Um, and the pathway that does that, it's called the um, NF, uh, the um, matrix, it's the CY the MMP9 MMP9 pathway. So CYPA and FKFA B MMP9. And um, beta hydroxybutyrate, the ketone, will actually help to um, decrease the end product of this pathway that breaks down the blood brain barrier. So protecting the blood brain barrier. That's one thing it does. Mm -hmm. um, other things that happen in Alzheimer's disease are there are a lot of receptors on cell surfaces, including insulin receptors. Uh, also things like ABC1, LRP1, which helps clear out um, amyloid from the brain. And in Alzheimer's disease, especially in APOE4 carriers, these genetically at-risk individuals, the recycling process that gets those receptors to the cell surface is impaired. So you have less receptors at the cell surface, and that's bad for Alzheimer's disease. Um, interestingly, there's some research showing that uh, like butyrate, it can inhibit this um, epigenetic regulator called HDAC4 that can help actually restore proper endosomal functioning so you can get more receptors at the cell surface. There was a study by Prasad et al. in 2018 showing that um, butyrate, um, among other HDAC inhibitors, could restore um, LRP1 levels, which help clear out amyloid. Um, so giving another mechanism by which ketones could help flux amyloid out of the brain as well as do other things, including help lipidate. Um, well, I won't get into that. That's complicated. Yeah. But it can, I'm, I'm just going to punch out some more and then we can, we can delve into sure. it. Sure. But um, ketogenic diets can help improve lipid, uh, energy trafficking in the brain. So um, the brain's energy systems are really complicated. They're partitioned into different cell types. Your brain isn't just neurons. There's like astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, um, microglia, et cetera, and it can help fuel cycling better. Um, I mentioned inflammation in the brain is a big deal. So there are these microglia, the immune cells in the brain, and they become really active and angry, and they can cause all sorts of issues in the brain um, and cause neurodegeneration. And ketogenic diets help quell those. They help quiet them down. 
Um, potentially, this is speculating a little bit because this is very new research as of like I think this month. But um, there are mechanisms by which ketogenic diets could improve cholesterol trafficking and management in the brain and energy production and, and memory gene expression in neurons. Also blood flow. It's really interesting when you look at the baseline characteristics of some of the studies done in people with Alzheimer's disease, most have hypertension. The one trial I was thinking about was like two thirds, 70% of people had hypertension. And ketogenic diets are extremely effective at improving hypertension. In fact, it doesn't need to be keto, just reducing insulin levels can improve um, hypertension. Other things, well, improving DHA levels through having healthy fats, even just reducing um, carbohydrates and, and having a little bit more healthy fats. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I have too many thoughts coming to my head. I'm going to be quiet <laughs> and let you, let no, you I think I'm constantly leaping all over the place. These are just, by the way, papers that are popping to my head from the last three years, 2018 to 2021. So this area is blowing up. Right. Metabolic health, nutrition, and Alzheimer's disease. I think I spewed a lot. That's what I want you to take away is Alzheimer's disease is something we've known about for a long time, but very recently, there's a lot of focus on how to address metabolic health, including with nutrition, targeted nutrition, to help prevent Alzheimer's disease by mechanisms we are only now discovering. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been a long road, but I think in the coming decades, we're going to develop a lot of um, information and tools. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think, you know, you give a, a lot of different uh, examples of how it is that that ketones or beta, beta hydroxybutyrate being a ketone uh, can have, you know, a positive impact on brain health um, about the, the role that it plays in um, the ketogenic diet plays in uh, allowing for the proper function of the LRP1 to, uh, to allow for removal of amyloid, those protein plaques from the brain. You have the role of uh, it's changing the, the, the micro RNA for, to have more, uh, you know, more energy available in the neurons um, to have the memory genes activated. Um, so there, there's so many ways that it's helpful. Uh, one question that I have, um, and that you might have better experience with is what role do you think that ketone supplementation could play, um, as opposed to, you know, you're using your body's own ketones. I, I, so my, my PhD was actually using exogenous ketones. Mm. So one would think I have a bias towards them. I actually don't. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of this area is very new and, and a lot of what I'm saying right now is, is speculation. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's informed speculation. So for example, I, I cannot say that a ketogenic diet will prevent Alzheimer's disease because we haven't done 30 year trials on people who were young and started ketogenic diets. We probably will never have those data. I'm looking at the animal models and the mechanisms. Um, as for exogenous ketones though, there are trials showing symptomatic improvement with exogenous mm -hmm. ketones. So what happens in Alzheimer's disease or just in brain aging is that your brain's ability to use glucose goes down. This is especially true in women after menopause actually. Mm -hmm. And so your neurons can only use two fuels, really. I mean, this is some nuance there, but glucose and ketone bodies. So what happens if you're eating a standard diet and you're insulin resistant and you're aging so your brain can't use glucose, your neurons can't use glucose very well, and you don't have ketones as a fuel. Your brain has an energy deficit. 
you can supplement and improve that energy deficit by supplying ketones exogenously. And so there are case studies where they give, you know, ketone esters um, to people with Alzheimer's disease and they improve quite, some of them improve quite dramatically. Um, so they have a, I think, symptomatic benefit. I wouldn't necessarily think that they're alone sufficient to um, prevent Alzheimer's disease. That's a little bit contradictory to what I was just explaining because I was just spitballing about a lot of the mechanisms of ketones um, and what they could do that's good for the brain. That's true. I think there are benefits to ketones. That honestly, though, is the, the, the tip of the iceberg. It's not the most important part. The most important part is getting out of that 88%, improving your metabolic health. And that doesn't come down to ketones. It mostly comes down to therapeutic carbohydrate reduction. So I don't want to give the message to people that, you know, you need to be on a ketogenic diet to prevent Alzheimer's disease. I don't believe that at all. My, my message more or less is, you know, focus on your metabolic health. That is the, the most important thing you can do. You probably will get 90% of your bang for your buck for a little bit less effort. So it doesn't need to be, you never, you know, have a boiled sweet potato again. It's more just like you're starting with getting rid of like the sugars and processed foods and sea oils, then reducing the starches. It doesn't mean you need to be in ketosis and get, you know, less than 5% of your calories from, from carbohydrates, because even that will do things like, you know, it's reducing your blood sugar. So then you're not getting glycation of amyloid, which is toxic, um, or glycation of, of FOE. Um, sorry. So, so, no, so I think that, uh, you know, to, to kind of summarize a little bit what we were uh, just talking about, I think that, uh, you know, Alzheimer's disease develops over decades, and yeah. that uh, one of the first markers that you can see in people is this decreased glucose utilization brain tissue uh, as, as their Alzheimer's is developing more severely. And that, you know, as the brain is less able to utilize glucose, then ketones could be another option as an energy source, perhaps in, in advanced Alzheimer's to have some symptomatic improvement, but you're not necessarily changing the natural progression of the disease. And the way to do that would probably be more so through, you know, addressing metabolic, metabolic illness. Yeah, I think the, the analogy would be it's like if you take an omega-3 supplement, great for you. If you take an omega-3 supplement on top of having a McDonald's diet, it's a drop in the bucket. It's not going to do much. Mm-hmm. Eating exogenous ketones and supplements on top of doing a normal diet, it's not really going to, it's going to be outweighed by the poor diet. And I think in combination, they're more effective. Plus, we don't know long term what the effect is of having high insulin anti-ketones. That's not a natural human state. Mm-hmm. There are trials showing it's safe for like a couple, like, a, like 28 days, I think is the longest, but we just don't know long-term. So I think there are certain areas where exogenous ketones could have therapeutic benefit. So for example, higher levels might be desirable in, in, in certain neurological conditions. So if you're already on a low-carb diet, it can help you top off. So you can be on a low-carb diet and then boost with exogenous ketones if you choose to. But I, I think more of it comes from getting your body in, in, into um, a metabolic operating system that is consistent with the way we evolved. And mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of us are living that way right now. Mm-hmm. I think that's the root of, of the problem. And I think, you know, that's the place to get started. Now, I do want to just mention the 12%. Um, because if you're in that 12%, you don't need to do therapeutic carbohydrate reduction. You can if you want. Like it'll help you lose weight if you say you want to lose weight. Um, although if you, you're overweight, there's a pretty good chance you're not in that 
But um, then it just comes down to, I mean, eating a real whole foods diet. If you're having some boiled sweet potatoes and like, you know, leafy green vegetables and eating quote a balanced diet, and then you're exercising and sleeping well, you might be able to maintain. Different people have different tolerances over time. But like, you know, you're a young guy. Um, I'm a young guy. I have other reasons. I am on a ketogenic diet. I have other metabolic reasons to be on it, um, given my, my history. So it, it's, it's reversed my ulcerative colitis. That was really big for me. Um, there's a lot of diseases it addresses, but that's why I choose to be keto. But, you know, a lot of my friends, if, if, if they're insulin sensitive and healthy, I wouldn't necessarily say you need to go low carb to any degree. It's, it's an option if you start to enter that place where you're insulin resistant, but um, then it just comes down to eating, you know, a whole, a real whole foods diet. Um, and, and what that means, we can get into it a little bit because I don't even know, I actually don't even know what that means. Does that, does that include like having a big fruit salad with bananas? Are bananas a natural food? Right. No, like given the artificial selection, I mean, yes, they come out of the earth, but are they natural? And so how do you really prevent it? Low carb is conservative and, and we can talk about what a low carb lifestyle looks like because I feel like people get the wrong sense. Hey listeners, some of you have so kindly asked how you can support the podcast. You can help by supporting us on Patreon, so please kindly find our Patreon link in the show notes. You can also support us by leaving a review, so please let me know what you think about the show by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook as Dr. Nissen. And it's important to note that this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. And the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is content of this podcast and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.